Today we're continuing on with our sermon series, Questions for God. We've been discussing the questions that you sent in, questions that all of us have wrestled with at one point or another. Now, the point of these sermons is not to give you the one right answer. In fact, you may disagree with some of the things that we have said over the past few weeks. But the point is to give you talking points, discussion things that you can talk about with others and to encourage you to continue pursuing an understanding of how God would answer these questions. This morning, we're looking at what is the point of prayer? Now, all of us have probably had some kind of negative uh, experience with prayer at one time or another. Maybe it was listening to a televangelist talk about prayer in such a way as to get rich off of it. Or maybe we've had a well-intended friend who said something to the effect of, if you just believe enough and say the words, in Jesus' name, God will answer your prayers. Or maybe we've seen that person interviewed on television who was the sole survivor of a terrible accident. And they say something to the effect of, well, God answered my prayer and saved me. God must have something more for me to do on this earth. Now, the problem comes because there's a hint of truth in all of those. For the televangelists and all of us, we should be filled up and get something out of prayer. Now, not in our pocketbooks, but in our spirit, we gain so much from the presence of God. And there really is something about believing and praying in Jesus' name. It's not that those words are some sort of magical incantation that if we say them the right way and and believe with enough effort that we get God to do what we want. But rather, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's praying with the heart of Christ. We are praying for the things that Jesus would pray for. And absolutely, we should rejoice and give thanks if we are spared some kind of tragedy But it's not because we prayed more faithfully than someone else. Or it's not because our lives had more to offer than someone else. And so God chose us and abandoned the rest. The truth is we can celebrate our own blessings, but we'll grieve the loss of of others. And we don't fully understand the mysteries of how God works in prayer how sometimes God seems to answer and sometimes it doesn't seem like God answers them in the way that we would want. That is a mystery. But what we know is that God is present. Now, sometimes we focus on prayer as just the list of things that we want from God. And when we do that, we really limit our relationship with God. And we limit our viewpoint of what God really does in the world. And it becomes kind of uh, contingent on how we've experienced our prayer life. If we feel that we've had several prayers answered, then we can become confident in our own ability of prayer. And yet, if we feel that we haven't had that kind of response and we've had several prayers that seemingly go unanswered, then it can leave us to ask the question, what's the point of prayer? Prayer is conversation with God. And the point of those conversations is to bring us into deeper relationship with God. 
God is present with us in those conversations, and yet it's, it's two-way. We are talking with God, and we are experiencing what God wants to say with us. Too often, we focus on just what we want to say. I want you to think for just a moment of the people that you love most in this world. What would you have them to share with you? In any of your discussions with them, do you want them to share with you their hopes and dreams? Do you want them to tell you about the things they are attempting to do? Do you want to hear about their struggles? Do you want them to be trusting enough in their relationship with you that they open enough and they open up and talk about their sadness? Do you want them to share their feelings for you? Now think of those same people and what are the things that you want to share with them? Do you want to tell them about your own thoughts and ideas so they can know more about you? Do you want to encourage them in their pursuits? Do you want to make sure that they know that there's nothing standing between them and you, that all is forgiven if they've ever made a mistake? Do you want to share your love with them? Conversations develop into wonderful relationships when we allow the both sides of that conversation to happen. Too often we worry about what we're trying to say or our list or everything we're trying to cover with God, and we don't give enough time considering what God might want to say to us. I think there are three things this morning that can help us focus on listening to God and developing our conversations, not just on what we want to share, but on what God wants to hear from us and speak to us in return. First, God wants to hear and speak to us of our needs. Now, this morning's passage is from Psalm 46. And this is a wonderful one to pray or to read through before you pray. In fact, if ever you're having trouble in your prayer life and you need to kind of jumpstart it, a great uh, experience is reading through the Psalms. In fact, let the Psalms become your part of the conversation with God. Pray them out loud. You'll hear words of, of people through the ages that have experiences of joy and loss, just the same as any of us. And so the psalmist this morning leads off and says, the, the Lord our God is our refuge and strength. Now the word refuge in the Psalms is an important word. It's woven throughout the entire book. And what it means is to take refuge in is to have trust in, to have faith in. Now we have an understanding of faith as knowing without doubt of God's undying love for us as his children. But sometimes in the context of prayer, we hear the word faith used in a way that means more of a, a confident knowing. And that if we have so much confidence and we know and believe without doubting, we can get God to do what we want. If we have enough of that kind of belief, we can control God. Now, think for a moment of what happens to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is facing his death, and he pours out his heart in this anguish, in this prayer, in this prayer that he offers. And he says, let this cup pass from before me. 
yet not my will but thine. Do we really think that the son had the father over a barrel right up until the point that he said, not my will but thine? Or do we think that Jesus just didn't have enough faith, otherwise his prayers would have been answered? We don't always understand the way God moves and operates in prayers, but it's more important to understand that they are a conversation and that God is present. Faith and putting our trust in God talks about us knowing God's love for us. Now, that doesn't promise that there won't be any hardships in life. In fact, the scripture this morning says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we need not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains tremble and the earth roar and foams. It doesn't promise that we won't face hardship. In fact, it kind of assures us that we will. The point of this is saying that we can trust in God to be our refuge, that God's love will lead us through those times of turmoil, the times that the world is crumbling around us. Jonathan Aitken is a British citizen. He was a politician. He was born to a notable English family, very distinguished. He grew up first as a journalist, and then he went into politics. And he rose through the, the, polit- the kind of ranks until he became the Minister of Defense Procurement. Now, all along, he had kind of enjoyed the ride. And he was enjoying kind of the notoriety, the power, the money, the circles he was operating in. And it kind of went to his head, and he started accepting gifts from people. And this, of course, was a, a terrible conflict of interest. And he got caught on the time that he allowed a group of businessmen from Saudi Arabia to cover his hotel expenses while he was in a business meeting in Paris. Now, the London newspaper, The Guardian, caught wind of that, and they published the facts on their front page. And, of course, he was mortified. And he was so angry, he called a press conference. And he demanded that they retract their article or he would sue them. Well, they didn't, and he took them to court. The problem was they were telling the truth. And the only way he could win his case was to lie. And he did that in spades. Once he started to lie, he had to continue to lie and cover up cover up more and more of his lies until the point that he finally stated that his wife, who was in Paris at the time, and she really wasn't, he said his wife had paid for the hotel herself. And when asked why was his wife in Paris during his business meeting, he said, well, she was there with his daughter shopping. Well, neither one was there. And he was asking his wife and daughter to testify under oath for him. Well, all of his lies were exposed, and he was convicted of perjury and sentenced to prison. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, his wife divorced him, and she won a large settlement. And because of that and all of his legal fees, he went bankrupt. There was a long period of time that his children refused to talk to him. And so he had lost everything, his marriage, his home, 
his dignity, his freedom. When he went to prison, he had been someone who is familiar with church, but never really went regularly, and he didn't have a relationship with God. And so while in prison, he had all of this time, and he used it to connect with God. Now, it developed a hunger within him, and he began to study the Bible diligently. Eventually, after he was released, he would go on to seminary, not to become a minister, but simply because he was so hungry to learn about God. He's gone on, and now he leads an international prison ministry. But while he was in prison, this was his opportunity to grow in his relationship with God. Now, God didn't send him to prison for that reason. Jonathan Aitken arranged for that himself. But while there, there were several grace moments that occurred that transformed his life. The first one happening when he arrived to prison. You know, he was a public figure, a a politician, and so everybody knew he was on his way. And all of the prisoners started screaming. And they started talking to him about all the violent things they wanted to do to him. They wanted to kill him. And so by the time he arrived to his cell, he was terrified. But the fear was not the worst. The worst was the overwhelming guilt that he felt for all that he had done. He had asked his wife and daughter to lie for him. He deserved to be there, and he knew it. And so he couldn't sleep that night for all of the screaming and all of the guilt he felt. And so he pulled out his Bible and he turned to the Psalms and he opened them up and he found the Psalm and he prayed it out loud. Oh God, here in the depths, hear my prayer. Oh Lord, hear my voice. And he said in that moment, he knew he was not alone. He felt the presence of God. And he knew that through the generations, from the psalmist who had written those words to people who had been in very similar experiences, so many had felt that sense of despair, and yet God was with them. And so he developed the habit of praying through the psalms, lifting them up as his prayer to God. One of the other inmates took notice of it and asked if he could join with him. And so these two men started praying together every single day, lifting up the Psalms and studying them. Well, they finally decided that they needed to grow their group and invite others. And so until the time that he was released from prison, that group began to grow and develop over and over. What about a week before he was to be released, this prayer group asked him if he would give a speech and talk to them about all the things that he had learned in prison. And they said, we need to open it up, not just to our, our group, but we need to open it up to anyone in prison who wants to come and listen to this. And so they announced the meeting. And sure enough, many from the general prison population came to this meeting. And one of them was a man by the nickname of Big Face. Now, he had that nickname because years before he had been in the mob and his face had been on numerous wanted posters. And so he had gotten this nickname, Big Face, and he was the most feared person in the entire prison because of all the murders that he had committed on the outside of prison and all of those he had committed on the inside. Everyone knew about him and knew his reputation, and he was frightening. And here he was, and he made Jonathan nervous. 
But Jonathan started talking about the Psalms and how that very first night he cried out, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. And he said that he could see that Big Face was notice, noticeably moved. Tears were streaming down his cheeks. And so he continued on and he talked about how the book of Psalms has been used by spiritual leaders throughout the centuries as a mode of prayer. That people and saints of the church like St. Augustine and the Reformation church leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin had all prayed through the Psalms. By the time that he got to the end of the speech, Big Face was there ready to talk to him. And he came up and in a gruff voice, he said, look, I want you to come and come to my cell tomorrow night and give that same talk. I have some friends that I think they need to hear it. Now, he must have seen the the look of panic on Jonathan's face. And he said, look, if it'll make you more comfortable, bring along some of your own friends. In fact, if they're in your same cell block, why don't you bring along that Augustine and Luther and Calvin fellow? Bring them with you. Well, they weren't able to attend, but Jonathan made it. And he gave that speech and once again realized that praying the Psalms and speaking of our own needs to God, God is there and present and knows our need before we even ask. There's nothing wrong with lifting up our desires to God, but it's important for us to listen and hear how God responds to us. The Lord is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Second, the Lord wants to hear and speak to us of joy. The psalmist goes on to say, be still, And know that I am God. Now, I'll be honest with you. One of the hardest things in my spiritual life is growing still in the presence of God. Now, often it's because I have scheduled too much in one day and I'm running busy. And so I'll enter into a prayer and I'll run through my list and talk about all the people I want to lift up to God. And and sometimes I'll have enough time to, to share my feelings to God. And before I know it, I'm saying amen and running off to the next item on my to-do list. I think sometimes it's hard for us. We don't schedule enough time for prayer. And sometimes it's hard for us to be quiet in the presence of God because deep down we're concerned what God might say to us. Maybe we're afraid that God will point out all of our mistakes. Or maybe we're afraid that God will tell us that we haven't measured up, that we're simply not good enough. Or maybe, most of all, we're afraid that we won't hear anything from God. I want you to think back for just a moment to your childhood, to think of that one person who was always there for you, that you could count on no matter what, that you could trust in, that you could take refuge in this person. Now, can you remember back to the times that they knew just the right words to encourage you? And man, a little bit of encouragement from them just kept you going for so long. Or maybe they knew just the right way to comfort you when you were sad. Or weren't there times that you could just be with them and neither one of you said anything, and yet you just felt better for being in their presence? 
When we come before God, we can grow still and we don't need to fear the silence. God is going to tell us things about God's concern and love for us and encouragement and forgiveness and mercy. But in those times of silence, we can be comfortable and confident because in those moments, we grow stronger just for being in the presence of God. It changes us. In the early 1940s, there was a young Jewish woman by the name of Eddie Hillisum that lived in Amsterdam. Now, she had had a difficult childhood, and her family didn't practice their faith, and so she wasn't really connected to God, and she had difficulty opening up to others and trusting. But then she went to college, and and somehow in college, she kind of found herself, and she started keeping a journal, and it was a chronicle of her faith journey of how she was making her way back to God and growing closer and closer to God every day. Now, at the same time, the Nazis were carrying out their terrible final solution against the Jewish people. And it wasn't long before Eddie and her entire family were taken to Westerbork, which was a transit camp, before they were finally transported to Auschwitz, where she and her family lost their lives. But you can read in her words, her voice, of her deepening relationship with God. And despite the fact that the Nazis took away her home and all of her possessions and her freedom and her family and ultimately her life, she had this growing presence of God in her life and that could never be touched. And this joy grew within her and was with her till she died. I want to read to you one of her writings. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised toward your heaven, tears sometimes run down my face, tears of deep emotion and gratitude. Now, it wasn't that she was blind to her surroundings. She wrote of her pain and anguish. She went on to say, And I want to be right there in the thick of what people call horror and still be able to say, life is beautiful. Yes, I lie here in a corner, parched and dizzy and feverish and unable to do anything. And yet, I am also with the jasmine and the peace of sky beyond my window. For once you have begun to walk with God, you need only keep walking with God and all of life becomes one long stroll, a marvelous feeling. How could anyone feel joy and fellowship in a place of such torture and torment? And it was because she practiced the presence of God. She would grow still in her prayers and listen to God's voice. She was able to take refuge inside and feel the presence of God, and it gave her strength and joy, and that could not be taken from her. Now, joy that comes from a connection with God doesn't deny the pain and suffering that are in the world around us, but it helps us to live through them because we are stronger for God's presence in our life. And when we experience the deepest pain we could ever imagine— That joy from it within, that presence of God, can remind us that these are temporary. 
and the presence of God is eternal. Listen to the psalmist. Be still and know that I am God. And third, God wants to hear and speak to us of love. The psalmist goes on to say, The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our refuge. Now, I think in that phrase, the Lord of hosts, he's talking about uh, the God of heaven and all that reside in heaven. God is Lord over all. And then when he goes on to the phrase, the God of Jacob, he's talking about all the generations of people on the earth. And so the psalmist is saying, the Lord of all that is in heaven and all that is on earth is with us. This God is our refuge. Now, if we could take time in our prayer life to just absorb that the Lord of heaven and earth loves us as his children, that will transform us. And if we will be intentional about asking God to help us share that love with others, I think we'll be surprised at how many opportunities we're given. I just finished the book, Island of the Lost. It's a great summer read. It's about two ships that are shipwrecked at Auckland Island. Now, Auckland Island is a group of islands that are about 300 miles south of New Zealand. They are part of a a sub-polar climate because of their proximity to Antarctica. The the main island, Auckland Island, is rough and and harsh and has very little in the way of resources. They've tried two or three times to put settlements there, but all of them have failed. But because of the rocky area around these islands, there have been several ships that have wrecked there. And in the early 1840s, there were two that were wrecked, and the survivors lived on the island at the same time, never aware of the other's presence. The first was the Grafton, and then four months later was the Invercald. Now, the Invercald was the larger of the two. It had better provisions, and it had a crew of 25. And yet, right from the beginning, you start to see what would lead to such a discrepancy in the survival rate between the two ships. On board the Invercald, when it struck the rocks... They had several minutes to be able to prepare and think about what kind of provisions to remove from the ship. And yet, from the beginning, they didn't coordinate anything. There was no camaraderie. There was no leadership. Every man for himself. There were six men that were injured in the wreck, and they didn't think to help them in any way. They left them behind, and those six men drowned in the ship. The ones who made it to shore stayed there on shore for four days doing nothing, eating the little provisions they had brought with them and the shellfish that were around until they finally ran out of food. And one by one, they started going off on their own to find other sources. There was a man who had developed an illness, and they simply left him behind on the beach to die. They tried to develop a camp together, but they soon fought with each other. They started attacking each other, stealing the food that they would find, and they started disbanding, and they all went their own way. Almost a year to the day of their wreck, another ship pulled into their harbor, and three of the crew members were able to signal it, and when they got on board, 
they didn't mention anything else about the possibility of survivors. They didn't ask the crew of that rescue ship to go and look for anybody who might possibly have survived. If they had, they would have found the survivors of the other shipwreck. But these three crew members got on board and they didn't look back. And in fact, when they wrote up their own accounts of the story, they didn't even mention each other by name. They only referred to each other by the jobs they had held on the ship. Out of a crew of 25, only three survived from the Invercald. Now, the Grafton had spent a time of uh, over a year and a half shipwrecked. And there were five in that crew. And yet, from the beginning, you could see a different scene entirely. They had the wherewithal to start talking about a plan and, and what provisions they needed. And they worked together Before the wreck had ever occurred, one of their crew had become deathly ill. And the four others risked their lives to take him safely to the lifeboat amidst the storm. Once they got on the lifeboat, they saw that the waves and the the storm around them was taking them out to sea. And so one of them, who was a, a strong swimmer, tied a rope around his waist and dove in the water, swimming to the next rock, pulling the boat behind him. And then he dove in the water again, swimming to the nearest rock. And rock to rock, he towed the boat to shore Once they got on the shoreline, they cared for their sick crewmate, and they started putting up a shelter and and finding food, and they would work together for the entirety of their stay. They nursed the one back to health, and he became their spiritual leader. He would hold nightly worship and prayer services for all of them, and they all participated. They prayed for one another. After a while, they started having school together, and each one of them would share something that they had to offer. The captain taught two of the crew who were illiterate. He taught them how to read and write. And in return, they shared their languages to the entire group. One was Norwegian and one was Portuguese. And they lived like that in community, fellowshipping and celebrating the presence of God amidst the terrible circumstances And it led to their survival. After they had been there more than a year, they decided they couldn't wait any longer. They were all on the verge of starvation. And they couldn't wait to see if a ship would just happen upon them. And so they made plans to fortify their little lifeboat and attempt to sail it the 300 miles back to New Zealand. They spent weeks preparing the boat. And when that morning finally came, all five of them got in And it soon became obvious that they weren't going to make it with all five in that boat. And so they made the difficult decision to leave two behind. Now, each of them would go on to say that out of everything they experienced, the illnesses, the injuries, the animal attacks, the starvation, nothing was more painful than leaving their friends behind. And each group not knowing if they would see the other again. About a week after they set sail, this group made it to the shoreline of New Zealand. And the captain, who was the only one who was married and had children, even though he hadn't seen them for two years and was desperate to get home, the first thing he did was start to raise money and support to launch a rescue mission. 
And even though he hadn't fully recovered, he went with that ship and he said the sweetest thing he's ever seen in his life were his two friends standing on the shoreline. And a few days later, he brought them back safely and he reunited his crew and none of the five members of the Grafton lost their lives. I think it was because they were committed to God and they understood God's love for them and it transformed them and they couldn't help but share God's love for each other. They were committed to each other just as strongly as they were committed to their own survival. If we will spend time hearing the love that God has for us, it will help us to share that love with others. And so what's the point of prayer? Prayer is conversation with God, a time that we can share anything, and God wants to share everything. Make time for prayer. Take refuge in God. For the Lord of hosts is with us, And the God of Jacob is our refuge. It's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.